0: with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks and I love to talk about the tech and today we're going to talk about a company called Sierra Online. It was a game company that was a dominant player in the PC games space in the 80s and 90s. Uh, And really, when I say dominant player, that is a serious understatement. Sierra Online was Mm. the PC game company of that era. Uh, In 1996, just to give you a little spoiler for later in the episode, the company was acquired for the princely sum of $1.06 billion. Though that was all in a stock swap. It wasn't for cash. If you adjust that for inflation for today's money, that ends up being about $1.7 billion. That's how much the game company was acquired back in 1996. And considering its origins, that's phenomenal. Now, I got the chance to speak with Sierra Online co-founder Ken Williams. And he and his wife, Roberta, founded Sierra Online back in 1979, 1980. And we're going to play that interview first. And then I'll fill in some of the gaps with the timeline for Sierra Online and go into more detail about what was going on with the company. But the interview is pretty interesting. One thing I want to mention right off the bat is the interview with Ken really drove home the fact that there's no substitute for talking with a primary source because I had researched Sierra quite a bit before I had a conversation with Mr. Williams and as you'll hear, I didn't even have a full understanding of things that were going on behind the scenes. You know, you read about these articles, these reports, you, you read all this information, all this supplemental information. And then when you go to the primary source, you find out like, no, that's not exactly how things happened. And you realize, huh, the written record of history appears to be different than what actually happened. That's a valuable thing to keep in mind all the time, always, but particularly for this episode. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything, so let's go straight to the interview. Ken Williams, welcome to Tech Stuff. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me and my listeners. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. it will be fun. I think so, too. I, it is really a dream come true for to get the opportunity to speak with you, just to give you a little bit of an idea of where I'm coming from. Uh, I was born in 75, so I grew up right as the era of the microcomputer morphing into the personal computer was taking place. We had an Apple IIe in my home. Uh, I was one of those folks who, m- largely because my dad is also one of those folks, started playing games early on. And obviously, the Sierra Online series of games became a huge, uh, influential power in the, those early days, and I think definitely played a role in pushing forward the narrative aspect of gaming in general. That was something that you really, you only saw one of two types of games in those early days before I would, I would say before really Mystery House came out, which is that you either got text only or you got a very simple arcadey kind of game, but you never really had the combination of graphics and text, something that Sierra really became known for in those early days. But before I jump into that, what's a little bit about your background, before you got into creating games, uh, were you you a a programmer for things like mainframe systems and things of that nature?
2: Uh, Yep, I was a uh, programmer on uh, mainframe computers. And, um, well, I don't know, I was doing uh, software development for a lot of different, companies in the Los Angeles area, and it was all focused on um, online applications. In those days, uh, yeah, and people had mainframe computers and terminals scattered around the country, and I was kind of the, um, I guess, semi-expert on uh, dealing with that, and that, that was where the name, uh, initially, CR was called Online Systems, and it was uh, my consulting practice, and then the first couple of games, I think, still said Online Systems, and then we decided to move to
1: Yosemite, and we named it um, Sierra Online. Nice. And when you were uh, working, from the the stories that go around, and I don't know how much of it is apocryphal versus true history, but the story tends to be that you were uh, you had purchased an Apple computer. That this was one of those early microcomputers. That's what we called personal computers before we started calling all of them personal computers. And that you were working on a Fortran compiler for the Apple computer when the first uh the first thoughts of building a game came up was that is that accurate
2: yeah yeah that's accurate i I had actually done um oh something very similar to a fortran compiler for a a company i was working for and then um, microsoft released uh, visual basic for the um, i think prs80 and um I started thinking about wouldn't it be cool if there was a Portran compiler on the Apple II and, um, uh, compete with Microsoft, I guess. And, uh, then Roberta saw a game that uh, was on a time-sharing terminal hooked into MIT, the original, um, uh, the original adventure and was playing it and said, um, that she thought it'd be fun if there was a version of it for microcomputers or personal computers. And, um, I remember around that time, she got me an Apple II for Christmas, and um, I started coding on the game for her at the same time I was working on the compiler, and when I started going door-to-door with computer stores to, you know, kind of peddle the idea of my Fortran compiler, they were all excited about her game and not Fortran, So, so we became a game company
1: a uh, very practical, very pragmatic approach into getting into into games. and it really it's hard to explain to people today how this was really uh, a huge leap forward to have the the graphic element, the the images element, even though they were static images and they were monochromatic because of the old Apple II uh, that adding that to the element of a text-based, Adventure where you're, you are put in the, the role of a protagonist who has to make choices in order to navigate through a game. That combination had not really been explored before the first game Mystery House comes out, which was, as the name implies, a, you were solving a mystery. And I imagine that that ended up creating, uh, a, a bit of a stir at the time because it was, it was sort of a new idea, but also as I understand it, Uh, There was the world was so different back then. Today, if you want to buy a a game, you tend to go with digital distribution. You'll download a game, and that's it. You never have to worry about it. In those early, early, early days of PC gaming, there were very few places where you could actually go to buy games. It was a, a, a very young industry. And from what I understand, the initial approach to selling Mystery House was that you had a full-page ad in, like, a hobbyist magazine, and people had to cut out a little order form and actually fill it out and send it in to you. Is that accurate?
2: Um, Well, kind of. Yeah, those were primitive times. There was no – part of the problem was how do you deliver the games. Mm -hmm. You know, games in those days were on audio cassette, and uh, most of the software sold for the T-R-S-80 was on audio cassette. And even the Apple II originally, I think, uh, games were on audio cassette, and then they came up with the idea of a disk drive, but it only had 80K of storage, and that's less than, um, you know, than one low-res picture. So, it, you know, how to deliver a game and fit it on an 80K floppy and then get it to the user was kind of a challenge. And uh, how do you do pictures given that there's no, no place to store them? and even memory. I think on the original Apple II it was only 16 K of memory. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, it was kind of a challenge, but, uh, no, for marketing, I think there were only, um, Oh, what was it? Maybe 15 stores in the United States selling computers at that time. Mm-hmm. So really selling was pretty easy. You just called the stores and there was so much thirst for, uh, games that, um, you know, they'd do anything to get the games. They, um, because they wanted to sell the computers. you couldn't sell the computers without the uh, software. And uh, so we packaged them up, and to sell to the public, um, yeah, it's funny that the retailers didn't complain about us going direct, but we did run some ads, and it had our home phone at the time, and people would call and place orders, and then we would put them in a box and go to the post office and ship them. And... um, but the company, I mean, the company was growing so fast in those days that, um, you know, it, it, it really was a short time span. I think from um, when we realized the company was going to be a hit, quit my job and moved to uh, Yosemite. And um, oh, uh, we bought a home there and moved in and started selling and going back and forth to the post office to uh, ship to when we uh, rented an office and hired people. It was about a three-month or four-month span I mean, it was—you um, know—it was literally exploding, and every day, you know, sales were uh, way up from the prior day. And getting rid of our personal phone number and all the ads happened happened pretty quick. <laughs> Even the original copies of Mystery um, House, I think, had our um, our home phone for if you have any questions uh, to a call. So um, yeah, they, those were different times.
1: Yeah, I, I can't imagine anyone uh, taking those kind of pains today. That would have been uh certainly it was certainly a, an interesting approach. And the fact that, of course, the industry was so small at the time, I mean, still, I'm sure you were getting calls round the clock all the time, but uh at least it wasn't uh, something where you're talking about a, a game launching and then getting a million uh, sales right off the bat. It was in the thousands, which at that time was an a amazing success. Uh especially when you look at the install base there really weren't that many personal computers out this is in the era where it was just emerging from that hobbyist uh, market and starting to get creep into into more of a an average consumer kind of uh, household but that was a very gradual process and around the same time while you guys had your early years over at Sierra Uh, There was something going on with the home video game market on the console end where there was this glut of various types of consoles that were on the market. And uh, then we know that that eventually kind of capitulated into the video game crash that happened around 82, 83. And from what I understand, there was a similar kind of rough patch for software for computers about a year later. And, uh, and I imagine that those early years, there were some, some real ups and downs over at Sierra.
2: Kind of. You know, I, I don't remember ever a uh, softness in computer software. There was, um, you know, kind of a period of uh, wild growth in PCs. And then the video game industry was, um, you know, kind of while the uh, personal computer industry was probably going from zero to 10 million in revenue, the video game industry went from zero to Um, a couple hundred million. Mm. So it was growing much faster, and we got interested in the video game market and shifted a lot of development resources over to video games just as the video game market collapsed, and uh, that kind of left us with no product for uh, personal computers and, um, and just people focused in the wrong place. So, uh, plus we had spent a lot of money to, uh, buy cartridges and fund the development of the video games, all of which was wasted. You know, this was the era when people were bearing uh, EP cartridges out in the desert mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, it they, they caught us. And we went from, uh, I think 110 employees to 20 employees almost overnight and, um, you know, and I had to borrow on our credit cards and get a second on our home and everything in order to uh, pay the rent and keep us in business. And, uh, but then we got lucky in that uh, uh, I showed uh, IBM, I guess, uh, prototypes of some games that we were uh, thinking about and, um, and also a word processor. People forget that we, were, uh, we did a, uh, an amazing word processor at that point in time that was graphically based and IBM was impressed and gave us um, some nice uh, advance money toward the products. And at the time, I mean, it's a, it was a weird world, and IBM was worried about um, being broken up by the government as monopoly.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: when they would give us development financing, they also had a sign in this agreement saying that uh, we agreed not to sell to them exclusively. They were, um, they were in kind of a weird mode where they said, um, okay, we'll come kind of the development, you can sell the product to us, but we also have to promise us you'll sell it to our competitors. And we said, sure. And, uh, they released their machine, the PC junior, which bombed and, uh, we put the same software on the, uh, candy, um, 1000 from Radio Shack and it was a big hit. And, um, so it was kind of strange and that IBM ended up bringing the company back to life, um, in order to fund software that Radio Shack um, and us made a lot of money on, but uh, but that was that was good, and and so it wasn't really a sag in the uh, personal computer business. It was more of a um, we had shifted resources, and uh, that market collapsed, and uh, then we had to refocus. But then we did, and we never really hit another uh, tough patch after that.
1: Yeah, it's, that, it's great that you were able to pivot like that. It's a you know it says a lot about a company that had already experienced a great deal of success still being nimble enough to recover after uh, after a huge shift in the market. There, we've seen companies, many companies go under when they were encountering similar circumstances. Uh, I assume that the, the big software piece, the big game piece that was going to the PC Junior and to Tandy was the beginning of the King's Quest franchise. Is that correct? Yep. Uh,
2: uh, King's Quest 1 was... Um Kind of our first animated adventure and uh, was huge. I mean, it's hard hard to believe looking back at it now. It looks pretty clunky, but uh, it, um, there was nothing else like it in the market and um, and, and and so little competition. I mean, in, in a world in which there's uh, you know ten or twenty games released a year, it's uh, easier to break through than when there's uh, you know two hundred or five hundred. There's probably a thousand games released a year today. Right and uh, you know, most of which bomb, but in those days it was fairly easy to get exposure, and you know, Sierra was there first, which gave us kind of an extra edge, and um, plus we did a lot of a lot of cool stuff.
0: Yeah,
1: King's Quest was really innovative in the sense that it had this ability where you would have objects within the the frame of the picture that you're in the the area that you're walking around, and you could actually walk in front of or behind different objects. That kind of led to describing it as a 3D sort of thing because it wasn't just an XY axis where your character is is stuck along one plane of movement. You actually had some depth in there. And that was a big, you know, just like adding the graphics into the text adventure, now we have this animated adventure where you can even walk behind different objects. And that was uh, really innovative at the time. And again, the, the focus on narrative was something that I found really intriguing. You had all these different puzzles and jokes and, uh, and things that were really challenging and, and caused gamers to think in different ways in order to progress further. And it was, again, sort of pushing the the art form of game making forward. One thing I definitely wanted to mention so that my listeners could get an appreciation for it is uh, I doing research on Sierra and looking at these teams that were working on these different titles. It struck me how many women were working on this as developers on these games. Something that is, was, I think a lot of people think is, uh, was unheard of really, but you had a lot of, of, uh, women heading up various franchises, whether it was, uh, King's Quest or other ones. And, uh, to me, that was a very forward thinking approach too. It was obviously you were getting the right people for the right jobs and trying to make sure that you, Continued a uh, uh, you know pushing forward the the capabilities of your games and the narration of your games, but um, I, I found that fascinating because it wasn't it's not something I ever encounter in pretty much any other tech company unless it was a conscious decision uh, in an effort to create more diversity within the workplace. But this seemed like it was part of the culture early, early on.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It was a conscious decision. It was um, just looking for the best person for the job. And, um, yeah, I guess uh, in non-coding roles, um, it it tends to be a lot more evenly balanced. You know, coders do tend to be male. I mean, we had some female coders, but um, certainly in the creative and design and art and everything else, it was far more balanced, and I never... Tried for balance, or tried for anything, you know, it, it just kind of fell out the way it fell out when you look for the best person for for the job. So, um, yeah, I can't say that it was a uh, explicit effort to try to do I uh, don't know equal opportunity hiring or anything like that. Um, I don't, you know, I, I really. Yeah, I guess it was just focused on building good games.
1: So we got a lot of great games in this series. Like uh, the King's Quest series is extremely influential in the in storytelling, adventure game genres. Uh, you could argue the fantasy genre as well. So much so that we've seen some really remarkable, uh, even spoofs of King's Quest. One of the ones I think of is from uh, the brothers Chap, who did Homestar Runner and did a uh, a whole peasant's quest kind of uh, take off of it, and it. Clearly relied heavily on this knowledge of and familiarity with King's Quest. It became kind of a, um, not just King's Quest, but the other series as well that followed in a similar kind of vein, like, like, uh, Space Quest. It really, uh, shows that uh-huh. it had a huge impact on, on the culture of gaming in those early days. Were there any particular times during those, the, like the 80s era of Sierra, where you just were sitting back and and just kind of marveling at the the impact that your 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 products were having on the market
2: well, I mean I guess to answer that question, one is yeah, every day <laughs> it was really amazing I mean we went from nowhere to being um recognized everywhere i mean it, it's funny that um you know we were kind of kind of celebrities in a way. And um, just because computers are growing so fast, and we were kind of at the center of it, um, particularly as consumers. So, um, yeah, I I, I guess we were, were, although even now what's funny is that um, I don't think we realized how much so, and that now we're 20 years later, you know, since we sold the company, and still people remember Sierra Online, that you're talking to me is amazing. Right? It's 20 years after we did the game, uh, or the games, after we sold the company and retired. And there's still people that um, know we existed. So it's uh, yeah, kind of astounding.
1: It's one of the uh, things that I, I think back on in my childhood are all the different games I played. So it's clearly a huge impact on myself. And I know several of my listeners, I mean, I've I've had people request... But- that I cover Sierra multiple times. So I'm very thankful for this op- opportunity. Um, now in
2: 1988, yeah, was one, one oh, sure. I guess i oh, go ahead.
1: No, no, please.
2: No, no I was just going to say that one thing people don't, I guess, relate to now is that um, because there hadn't been computers before, and then there were that people weren't sure what they would do, what they were capable of. And there was this inherent belief that they were educational. Mm -hmm. So parents loved buying computers for their kids, and Sierra kind of played into that in a way, in that um, because our games were using parser and there was on-screen text to be read, parents uh, had no doubt that they were um, educational. And I think most parents in those days believed computers were good for their kids, which is a little different than today when a lot of the games are kind of like... um, shoot them ups and, and kind of kill people with the games, and I think parents are not quite as um, enthusiastic about uh, buying games for their kids anymore. It's kind of a different kind of game and a different, I don't know, just a whole different attitude. But um, any, anyway, hold on for one second. We're just trying to get her yoga video going on a TV, and I need to be able to figure it out. Sure. So, sure. Well, one minute, I'll be back. Yeah.
1: In 1988, uh, Sierra held its initial public offering, and so you you transitioned from a privately held company to a publicly traded company. How did things change behind the scenes, or was it essentially business as usual? Did it, were there any kind of shifts in the way you were doing things from before and after?
2: Well, I, you know, I guess the biggest thing was um, incredible stress to hit numbers. The um, Every, every employee in the company had stock options and every employee in the company, uh, well, maybe not every employee in the company had stock options. I tend to give um, them to get into people that could really influence our growth.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: it'd be more of the um, development teams, although we were heavily skewed toward development. Um, well, always, at all times, I'd say two-thirds or more of the staff were involved in creating product. So, um But everybody had stock options, and people started watching the stock price daily, and their net worth would go up and down based on the stock price, and well, there were also, obviously, all the mutual funds that held our stock and all the individual people, and if our stock went up, everybody smiled, and if it went down, they were, you know, they were depressed. So, and performance as a public company is measured every 90 days, and a gain Hitting the quarter or not hitting the quarter would have a huge impact on the top line, which would have an even bigger impact on the bottom line. And um, suddenly there was an incredible push to get a date, you know, game out on a particular date. And, you know, if you look back at our numbers, they would be um, uh, going along fine until you get three weeks from the end of the quarter, and then all of a sudden... You know, I would have to run over to development and say, we've got to ship this. It's got to go out the door next week. And the teams would rebel, and they would take me for pushing them to release a game, and they'd say, just give me another day, another day, and it'll be better. And, um, you know, I didn't want to be in that position, and they didn't want to be in that position, but it was kind of this horrible trap we found ourselves in where um, every quarter had to be better than the prior quarter. And, uh, otherwise the stock had cut down and, and, you know, and theoretically you shouldn't be managing the company according to the stock price. And we tried not to, but it's not that easy.
0: Mm-hmm. It really
2: is, um, oh, horrible to be a public company. Um, or at least I didn't like it. And it was stressful for me personally. And suddenly instead of, um, you know, trying to change the world and thinking of cool things to do every day. I was bogged down and taking calls from the financial community. And, um, you know, there was even one point where I just said, that's it, I'm out of here. And took off for, I think it was three months for what I called a sabbatical, but really it was kind of a around the world trip just to kind of, um, reset and kind of get my head right and then drop back in.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But, um, yeah, I'm being public. Um, we we were actually public for what almost eight years, and and um, you know, we did we did some good stuff, but it was also in a lot of ways kind of the worst time of my life.
1: Yeah, I can I can imagine. I mean, you you go you go yeah. from a a world where you know you can develop a game and you can ship it when it's ready, and the success of the game continues to propel the company forward into a world where. If you have a, a release date that you have in mind and if it's been announced at all, missing that becomes a huge problem. I know there's a lot of criticism in the uh, video game, computer game world now against companies doing one of two things, and it puts them in a terrible position. One Thing number one is that you miss your ship date and everyone goes bananas because the game is late. And that can be reflected in the stock price as well as just in the public opinion among gamers who, among many of their traits, patience is rarely one of them. And then on the other side, uh-huh. you have the the option of shipping on time, but the game itself is either not really complete or there's a lot of things that need to be fixed on a, a zero-day patch and the the announcement is... This game is coming out, and over the next couple of months, it's going to improve. So there might be some rough spots at the beginning, but don't worry, it'll get better. And gamers don't like that either, right? They want that finished, polished game where they feel like the thing they're buying is a a complete experience. It's not something that they have to add on to after that purchase. So then it puts the actual companies in a really tough position where you can't miss your Your ship date without dire consequences. But if you send out something that people perceive as not being complete, you get lambasted. So you kind of are in the worst of all worlds as opposed to going in that that privately held company route where you have the luxury of not necessarily announcing things like a ship date so that you can continue to develop it until it's ready. And of course, in your you know, heyday of of creating games. There was no option of patching after the fact. What you shipped was the complete game. That was it. When it went gold, it was set down. And so, I assume that that must have. I mean, there, I can't imagine the amount of stress you're talking about here on a on a daily basis of uh, dealing with this kind of shift in in culture. Really. Yeah.
2: Not, well, we did actually have a. Um, I remember it was called a BBS and it was one computer that sat in the corner, and we would put patches on it that people could download, but most people didn't have modems or a way to uh, download in those days. So it was... uh, But they'd dial a phone number directly into that computer, and it could support some number of users. And um, we did patch. It it was kind of a flawed process. And and in game development, people don't realize that there's... um, there's people that have analytic skills and people that have creative skills, but they often, you know, aren't the same person. Mm-hmm. So that, um, you know, I'd, I'd always think of artists as um, creative and uh, getting an artist to be able to say, you know, I expect 20 cells of animation out of you per day. Um, that's just never going to happen an artist will sit at the screen and agonize over one cell of animation forever. And, um, and it, it's tough to manage, Well, creative people designers or musicians. I mean, it's, um, managing a, uh, you know, game is, um, is messy. You know, the coders also will, will, uh, be a problem in times But um, you know, I, I, I developed kind of a system for doing it, which worked well. But um, oh, we were we were scattered, and that's one thing people don't realize about Scenario is that um, I had kind of a core philosophy that too many developers in one place can uh, destroy creativity. So mentally, I would I would think you know, if we start getting more than fifty developers in one place; it's just too many,
0: mm-hmm. and it
2: suddenly becomes a bureaucratic machine instead of a, um, you know, fun, creative group. And so we were scattered to, toward the end, I think 12 different locations and I would, um, fly to each of those locations and we'd have uh, kind of a review and, uh, people would show off their game and, uh, I'd give them ideas for what to do and try to help them with kind of the metrics for, um... You know, this is your budget, this is your ship date. Um, it looks to me like you're 30% complete, but you've eaten half the money. And um, I would go through team by team, and we have, you know, maybe 50 games in development at any time. And by the time I finished going to all the development groups, it was time to go back to the first one again. And that was kind of my life was, um, you know, fly to Boston, fly to San Francisco, um, you know, first. And then fly over to um, the outside development going in the outside of Paris, and um, I spent all my life on airplanes. Wow! So, well, I mean, it was kind of fun. I got to see the games, but um, really, every every meeting with a uh, game developer was kind of a battle, and that I was kind of the horrible corporate guy coming in to up their lives, and um, that was, you know that part was not fun. I mean, behind the scenes, I was rooting for them, and I loved the games, and you know, what, a, what a cool stuff to happen. But there's also, you know, I, I guess, a business side of things where you know, if the project development budget is a million bucks, then you got to deliver for a million, because if you develop for three million, the market isn't going to expand. It's um, you just use money instead of make money.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, And after, you know, after we did sell the company, um, you know, I, I was horrified that the company kind of went away, but um, also delighted that um, all those people that had uh, said, you're horrible, Ken, if you just leave us alone, we'd ship big mega hits uh, on time and on budget without you. Um, you know, I guess there's kind of a night told you so there, which is that um, you do need some business discipline for these games or you're going to have a disaster.
1: So in in my show I've talked about some other game companies and some of them have had uh relationships with Sierra and I'd love to hear your take on it. Uh so the first would be id because there was this this uh-huh. time period early in the days of id where the head, heads of id software came to Sierra. Can you tell me a little bit about what was going on back then?
2: Well, I yeah, I mean there's a few parts of this story, I, um, I I saw Doom and Duke Nukem and all these games coming along, and um, nobody at Sierra, you know, there's kind of a um, a passion you have to do a kind of, to do a kind of game, otherwise it's going to turn out uh, horrible.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I wanted a game like that, but um, I kind of didn't, kind of didn't. Did. There was a side of me that never liked violent games. And the idea of just running through a building, shooting at things, um, I found defensive. I mean, I really still to this day kind of attribute some of the problems in schools with um, kids um, kids that are unbalanced, getting out of control and shooting at other kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Can come from uh, games, uh, well, from role-playing game, mm-hmm. they do that. So I, I, I didn't really want to ship those games, but I also recognized that customers wanted to buy them. And so I was always kind of on the fence, but then, um, you know, when I saw Doom and stuff, I finally kind of said, well, this is good enough. Maybe we should ship it. And, um, then I talked to, uh, who was it? John Carmack. And there's a couple other guys. And so I'd come visit and they drove out in a van and, uh, they were living out of a van at the time. I think later they had, uh, sports cars, but, uh, they, uh, they came out, and I set up dinner at a fancy restaurant to kind of um, wine and dine them that Sierra should be their publisher. And um, they showed up looking kind of scruffy and probably would have been kicked out of the restaurant had, they not, uh, had it not been me and that I was a regular customer. And uh, But actually, I mean, we did see I and We had a really nice dinner, and um, I think came real close to publishing their product But, um, I didn't particularly want to give up control and it was a side of me that didn't particularly want to publish their product. So it just never really came together. But, um, that's too bad because it it really was a nice product. So, um, and I, I forget what they did. I I think they published themselves. Yeah. I I don't remember how they did, but yeah, they, I mean, obviously made a ton of money and uh, did well with it. And it really, um. Find a style of game to this day and almost dominates the industry. But, um, so they're, they're, I mean, yeah, they're pioneers of that genre and really, really cool guys and great guys. And, uh, and I missed one there that uh, later I made up for by uh, publishing Half Life. Mm-hmm. But um, even when we published Half Life, there was a side of me that said, you know, this is, this is going to get people killed. This is really a dumb thing to be uh, doing on computers. But, um, but uh, well,
1: you know, it is what it is. It definitely set uh, that that ground where the deal with Valve could go through. And obviously now Valve is, is the dominant powerhouse, at least in distribution for PC games. It's been a while since uh-huh. we've seen any development from them. But the distribution side is, I mean, that's, if you're not buying your games off Steam, you are in the minority at this point. Uh, so the fact that that Sierra played such an important role early on in Valve's life, um, uh, you could argue that that is a large reason why the company was able to get a really strong foothold and move to the success that it's at now. And you mentioned also that, uh, you know, seeing the Sierra name kind of go away, it sort of emerged as kind of a, almost like a boutique brand in 2014. Um, I, I imagine that that also, it just probably feels like there's very little, if any connection to the Sierra that you, that you and your wife built back in the eighties. Does there, do you feel any connection to the current Sierra name or ab- apart from, I mean, obviously your long history with it, but like the way it's, it's current incarnation is now.
2: Mm-hmm. No, none. Neither of her. I pays any attention to the game industry. Mm-hmm. And, um, Possibly part of why everybody doesn't like to do interviews or won't do them is because uh, she doesn't want people to think she's um, she's dumb when they say, what do you think about such and such a game? And she has to admit she hasn't uh, played a game in 20 years. So, um, it, um, yeah, no, we're pretty disconnected from it. We got briefly involved, and the guys were doing kind of company uh, called Odd Gentlemen, um, tried to start up the King's Quest franchise game series again. And uh, I'm sure there's something they were working on. We thought it looked pretty fun. Um, but then, um, it, as far as I know, it didn't go anywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: even us, we kind of got a copy and started playing it. the lost interest pretty quick. And um, I don't know if it was a game or just the art farm kind of. Um, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it was, but we didn't finish playing. And yet it looks beautiful and uh, played really nice so i don't know it's hard to, hard to do something that's really fun mm-hmm. so but I, I actually don't know how I did. I mean it was a hit. it's funny that we uh, you know so little about today's industry. We've just kind of gone on to other stuff we, um, you know we kind of did our second fifteen minutes of fame as uh, boaters, and that uh, we bought a boat and circumnavigated and have gone to lots of parts of the world that very few people see, um, you know, up in the Bering Sea and in Turkey and all kinds of crazy places. And I wrote four books on uh, boating. And, um, you know, we can't go to any marina anywhere in the world these days without somebody saying, hey, Ken Williams," And um, so we we just kind of shifted gears, I guess you'd say.
1: Well, I think that uh, the legacy is is certainly a worthy one it is an amazing legacy of games from multiple incredibly successful franchises that all went on to inform later games that have and games that still continue to come out you can see the influence that your your games had on those like the people who are developing those are people who grew up playing the Sierra online games so i think that that is continuing yeah. well
2: yeah. At one point in marketing, we did a um, list, and I wish I had it, of um, some of the first that Sierra did, and um, it was like two pages long, and not just fluff. I mean, there was a lot of um, things that we kind of pioneered that, um, you know, I, I mean, just you know, little things like you know, music and games and um, sound cards, We you can ship sound cards and we did we did so many well modems online games. I mean think about the Sierra Network and what we did there. That's probably my most proud accomplishment of all. And that there wasn't even the internet and we were doing on um, we had we had um, online fight simulators running on twenty four hundred modems years before the internet came along. So, um I don't know. Yeah, we we had some pretty 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 amazing history at that time. We had a good team. We had um Because we were Sierra and because we were first, anyone who was kind of interested in doing gaming, you know, for them, it wasn't really about the money, it was about working for Sierra because we were, um, you know, we were were the leaders at the time, and so we were able to get the best engineers um, that the world had to offer, and, um, you know, I was was there helping to lead the pack, but um, really it was the... uh, reputation of Sierra and our ability to recruit um, amazing people to put us where we were, which is strange, too, because we were located in a screwball place to put the company, and, yeah, it became kind of a company town. I think um, we had 500 employees at a time when uh, there were only 5,000 people in the town, and then we kind of outgrew and moved to Seattle but left some of the development behind. But, uh, basically you are coming
1: down. town. Yeah. When you get to a point where your, your operation is so large that you don't have enough places for people to live in, <laughs> in the town that you're located and you have to relocate to a different city, that's pretty remarkable. I don't think there are a whole lot well, of companies I'll... that have that story. Ken, I gotta oh, thank well, you I'll so sure. much. Ask
2: about or... No, oh, I think, yeah.
1: I think we've got a good, I think we've got a good conversation here, Ken. I really appreciate it. We, uh, you know, the, the, Full story of Sierra. We'll do, we'll do. You take care. All right, so here's a little bit more background on the whole story of Sierra Online's origins and evolution. So how did it go from a husband and wife startup operation to a billion-dollar company? Well, as Mr. Williams mentioned, he had been programming computers back in the old mainframe days, and he had been doing contract work for a company called Informatics, and was working with other programmers to try and build out a Fortran compiler. As part of his work, he brought back a teletype machine. Teletype machines could communicate back to a mainframe computer, and you would get printouts, and it was a pretty primitive terminal kind of access to a, a, a mini-computer, not a microcomputer. That's what personal computers would become, but a mini-computer or a mainframe. So this was kind of like having that long distance terminal and it didn't take long after the development of the programmable computer in general for people to start creating games for those machines. This happened well before the era of the personal computer back when the only people who had any access to computers typically were computer programmers. Sometimes the programmer would tackle the challenge of making a game as a way to teach him or herself how to program. It just, it became kind of like an engineering challenge. How would I make a program that could play this particular game, something simple like tic tac toe or battleship or something along those lines. Some of those games found their way onto the computer that Ken Williams was using for work and he would, he could access those games at home. Now, Roberta Williams was reportedly not terribly impressed with all of this until she played a game called Colossal Cave Adventure. Uh, also just known as Adventure, sometimes just called Cave Adventure. It has several different names, but it's a text-based game in which you play as a character exploring a cave to find various treasures. Now, text-based games are a type of interactive fiction in which the player is taking control of a, a protagonist. I almost said it in the red-letter red, uh, red letter media way, the protagonist and attempts to guide the hero through a scenario, and you use typed commands to do this, if you were to load up one of those games today, what you would see is a paragraph of text that would describe the immediate surroundings of your character. You could then type in commands to either try and get more information or take some sort of action within that environment, or even to leave that particular environment completely. So for example... If the description said that there's a threadbare rug on the floor, you might try to examine the rug or look under the rug or take the rug. You would type these commands in. So you might say examine rug and hit enter. If the programmer had built in a response to whatever it was you typed in, you would get that response. So it might say you look under the rug and there's a key. If they did not build in some sort of response to that, you would typically get some sort of generic message, such as, you don't see anything interesting, or, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Roberta Williams found the puzzles of this interactive fiction to be really compelling, and so she ended up playing other games along that type, although she said none of them were quite as interesting to her as the first one was. Uh, She played a lot of games written by a guy named Scott Adams. This is not the Scott Adams who is the cartoonist behind Dilbert. He instead was a text adventure designer. Uh, He created games like Adventure Land, Pirate Adventure, and Voodoo Castle, which really threw off that whole adventure motif they had going. By the winter of 1979, Roberta Williams had come up with an idea for her own game. And she just kind of thought that she could tell the same sort of stories. Now, she didn't have the programming knowledge, but she did have this passion for interactive storytelling that she thought that she could uh, pursue. Now, according to old interviews... Roberta's influences for developing this first game were Agatha Christie, particularly the story Ten Little Indians, and also the board game Clue. So her game was going to be in the mystery genre, requiring players to unravel a murder mystery as they played through, with multiple characters dying as the game continued. The way she got Ken on board, because of course Ken's doing his job as a programmer, He wasn't immediately sold on the concept of spending more time programming, but building a a game that his wife had designed. Uh, She said that, well, maybe what we do is buy ourselves an Apple II computer, and that'll be our Christmas present to each other. This is a $2,000 computer, well, more than that when you start adding in all the different components. Uh, Back in 1979, I mean, that's an enormous amount of money. And so they agreed. You know, Ken Williams was like, I get a computer out of this. And Roberta Williams is like, I can have the game I've thought of created and someone could actually play it. Now, Roberta's idea actually added in an element that was not found in other text adventures at the time, and that was graphics. Now, these were very simple graphics. They were just simple drawings. They were static. So there was no interactivity. There was no animation. But they did provide something that other text games did not. You could get a depiction of whatever that scene was. And the resulting title was Mystery House. And it was a success. The game was ready to hit the market in the spring of 1980. Uh, this was a big deal in an era in which computer uh, personal computers were still a very new concept. Uh, it, was, it wasn't really that common to find a household that had one. It was essentially hobbyists that owned these sort of machines. And they sold it through on uh print ads, as well as kind of going door to door to different computer stores. They developed other software as well, including other games. So it wasn't just games they were looking at. In fact, Ken Williams would use some of the tools he developed to make these games and then make them available as commercial products. So first you're like, well, how do I build this game? And then you would design a tool to help you build the game. And then you think... This tool might be valuable to people on its own. It's not just an internal tool for us to use. We can actually sell this as a product. And so they started to do that as well. They also began to sell some titles from other developers like Scott Adams, though on a small scale. So they sort of were acting like a publisher distributor in those days. In September of that year, this being 1980, they relocated from Los Angeles to Oakhurst, California, which is not far from Yosemite National Park. And during the first six months of selling games, the, they had brought in about $75,000 in revenue. So that's before expenses, but not a bad start. Seventy five grand in your first six months in a startup? Well, uh, not just a startup, but like a ma and pa startup. That's kind of incredible. Right around that time, they decided to rename their company Sierra Online, named after the Sierra Mountains, which they were now right at the foothills of. Uh, The company would officially become Sierra Online Incorporated in September of 1982. Their second original title was called The Wizard and the Princess, and this was sort of a proto-King's Quest game. King's Quest would become an enormous franchise in Sierra's history. It featured color graphics and intriguing puzzles. It sold more than 60,000 copies, which would, again, back in those days, It was a surprisingly large number of copies. 60,000 copies today is nothing because the the era of PC gaming has meant that we've seen a huge boost in the numbers of people who are playing games, and digital delivery makes it way easier to produce and distribute games. But back in those days, 60,000 units, that was a lot. Other games that the small company offered in those early years included titles like Crossfire, Jawbreaker, which was sort of like a Pac-Man clone, uh, Mission Asteroid, Lunar Leapers, and Ulysses and the Golden Fleece. In 1981, Chuck Benton, a programmer who decided to make a game as an exercise in programming, created a text-based adventure game titled, and I'm not making this up, Soft Porn Adventure. With a name like that, it probably doesn't surprise you to learn. It was a game in which you control a guy who's trying to hook up with various women. Not terribly sophisticated, or you could argue, not terribly classy. But like other text adventures, it meant trying to solve various puzzles in order to achieve your goal. The game would later become an important influence on one of Sierra's most successful franchises just a few years later, and that's why I mention it here. And, spoiler alert, it is not the King's Quest series that it influenced. In November 1982, Sierra would announce that it would invest almost a million dollars in sales and marketing, which marked the next step up in becoming a big business. And games that Sierra developed and or published in this time included a Donkey Kong clone called Cannonball Blitz, Uh, They did a port of Frogger for the Atari 8-bit computer systems. And they published a little game called Ultima II, The Revenge of the Enchantress. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about some of these. First of all, the ports became a big business. You had arcades that were doing quite well, and you had video game consoles that were selling uh, ports of those games, usually at around the 8-bit level or less. Uh, Then you had... PCs that were starting to try and get in on this too, but they weren't able to play arcade-style games quite at the level that consoles were because consoles were a very specific purpose-built machine and PCs were general machines, which meant they weren't necessarily as good at doing things that consoles could do at the time, keeping in mind the consoles were primitive as well in those days. But there was a big call for doing these sort of ports. Meanwhile, Ultima 2... Uh, that is a got a special place in my heart. The Ultima series was created by a guy named Richard Garriott, uh, who with his brother and his dad created a computer game business out of their family's garage. Richard Garriott had become interested in computer programming while he was in high school. And at that time, he wrote games for systems that didn't even have a computer display. So instead, the computer would print out uh, results on tape. So you had tape that was coming out of a printer, and it would print out a design using common computer characters, you know, letters and numbers and symbols, that kind of thing, in order to represent stuff like walls or characters or monsters and other elements in a basic sort of dungeon crawling kind of game. Every time you'd make a move or take some sort of action that would change the appearance of that environment, it would have to print out a new representation of that space. So, you know, you you move one space to the west, and it prints out a new version of the the display, so it reflects your move, that kind of thing. Now, Gary had got a chance to work with Apple computers in the late 1970s, and he created a game called Akalabeth just for fun, which was a graphics uh, overhead display computer RPG game, one of the first computer RPG games. He was working at a computer store at the time, and the store owner actually allowed him to sell copies of his game in the store. They just made a sheet that had the art for the game on one side, basic rules on the back side of the sheet, and they put a floppy disk in there and they put it in a Ziploc bag and they just tack it to the bulletin board. He managed to sell about a dozen copies. But one of those somehow made its way to a games publisher called California Pacific, and that became his publisher for that first game. They said, we want to publish a Calabeth. Are you cool with that? And he said, totes cool. Well, his next game was Ultima 1, which also was published by California Pacific. And after the success of Ultima 1, he began to work on the sequel. But he wanted something special for Ultima 2, He wanted to include a cloth map of the world, which was an expensive item to throw in as a freebie in a game box. It was considered to be a premium thing, and most game publishers weren't interested in doing that. This was shortly after the era where all the games were showing up in just Ziploc bags. So Garriott started to look for a new publisher, and he found one in Sierra Online. They agreed to his request to publish the game with a cloth map. That established the way that Ultima would come out from that point forward. Coincidentally, Ultima 2 was one of the first games I ever owned for the Apple IIe, and I've been lucky enough to chat with Richard Garriott several times, the earliest being back when I was a teenager, and someday I'll have to do a full episode on him and the companies he's worked for, and not only his work in developing games, but also the story about how he became one of just seven citizens to ever visit the International Space Station in orbit, without becoming an actual astronaut first. But let's get back to Sierra. So they publish Ultima 2, and that ends up getting some more success. By 1983, the company had achieved $10 million in sales. The titles that Roberta Williams was working on were gaining special attention because they had a reliance upon storytelling that other games of that era lacked. Most other games were developed just by programmers who were really good at coding, but they weren't necessarily the most adept at creating a narrative. So Roberta Williams came at game development from a totally different angle. She would conceive of the story and the puzzles outside of the realm of coding, and the difference was noticeable. At this time, computers relied upon several different types of media. It all depended on the system you had, what kind of media you would use. You know, this was before you would log in someplace and download a code so you had the emergence of the floppy disk that was starting to happen right around this time, but you also had cassette tapes. Some computers used cassette tapes as storage devices, and you would insert a program with a cassette tape into a drive on your computer. Some of them had cartridges, very similar to the classic game consoles of the time, like the Atari 2600. And cartridges in particular were problematic for a couple of reasons. One was that they were more expensive per unit to produce than other types of media, but the other big one was that once you designed a cartridge, you couldn't write over it. It was read only memory. So the actual coding for whatever the software is was hardwired into the cartridge. So you were committed once you did this. It was an expensive undertaking. Floppy disks, on the other hand, could be erased and overwritten. So even if for some reason you didn't need the software anymore, let's say you buy something and you realize, oh, this software is terrible. I don't, I'm never going to use this again. You could erase the disk and overwrite it, you could still make some use of the disk. Cartridges, if you didn't need that software, you just had a big piece of plastic sitting on your hands that you couldn't do anything else with. Well, Sierra Online created games for the Atari computer systems, which relied on cartridges. And then there was a big crash that essentially brought down Atari. And Sierra had committed to supporting Atari, so they were affected as well And they ended up having to downsize to about a third of what their company size had been at that time. According to Funding Universe, it meant going from about 120 employees down to 30. Now, another failed piece of hardware that plays a part in the history of Sierra is the PC Junior. This was a microcomputer from IBM that was meant to be the first home computer. And it was the first home computer from the business giant, I should say, from IBM itself. This posed a huge threat, potentially, to other computer companies like Apple, Commodore, and Texas Instruments. Everyone was sure that IBM was going to come in, throw its weight around, and put everyone else out of business and become a monopoly in the personal computer space. IBM had really deep pockets and already dominated the corporate computer landscape. And while the home computer was meant to be a general consumer device, Uh, IBM had seen some success with early personal computers, but they were aimed more toward home business operators, not so much the general consumer. This PC Jr. was meant to be something that the average person could go out and buy, not just someone who was a hobbyist or uh, a home business operator. So it was their game to lose, and they fumbled the ball big time. The PC Jr. had two models, one of them sported 64 kilobytes of memory, and the other had 128 kilobytes of memory. Uh, it was designed to connect to a television. That That's what you would use as your display, and you would actually have to turn the television's volume up in order to hear any sounds that the computer was generating. IBM also sold a monitor specifically for the computer. They called it the PC Junior Color Display. The PC Junior shipped with a chiclet-style keyboard that used infrared signals to communicate with. The PC Junior itself. So it was wireless. It had an emitter that shot infrared information to the computer that would then presumably pick it up. Uh, It used AA batteries, I think four of them, in order to operate. The physical design of the keyboard was one of the things that a lot of people uh, cited as a negative aspect of this computer. And along with that came the computer's cost. It was pretty expensive and other limitations that it had that ended up cutting the PC Jr. off at the knees before it could even debut. By the time it finally came to market, the general consensus was that the hardware was a big disappointment, and as a result, it became one of the biggest flops in technology. But it did create the possibility for King's Quest, because that was the game Sierra was developing for the PC Jr. at the time, And while the intended hardware floundered, Sierra was able to port King's Quest over onto other platforms, and there the game found an enormous fan base. And now, before I jump into the last section to really talk about what Sierra turned into, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Now, I had mentioned in the last section about King's Quest. King's Quest was another big leap forward for games. Instead of a text-based game with some static images the way the previous games had been uh, over at Sierra, players would actually control a figure who could move through an environment. And as you interacted with that environment, you would get animations that would accompany your commands. So this was no longer static. It was dynamic. King's Quest would spawn several sequels, eight if you're being technical, and it would serve as a model for several other Sierra online games. And again, it was very much story driven. And most of the puzzles had something to do with the fairy tale nature of the game. You played as a character named Graham and you would go on a quest in order to save a kingdom and become the king at the end. Some of the games that were also based upon this same sort of engine were uh, licensed properties. So they weren't original IP from Sierra. Sierra created a video game version of The Black Cauldron uh, that was modeled after the Disney adaptation of the classic Lloyd Alexander fantasy series. Uh, I had read the books, saw the cartoon, and then I even played the game. They also created a game adaptation of The Dark Crystal, which is a fantasy film that was made by Jim Henson Pictures. If you've not seen it, I recommend checking it out. It is really an interesting original fantasy story and it has some pretty creepy characters in it, too. In 1986, after a couple more King's Quest sequels had boosted more sales over at Sierra, the company developed and published the first Space Quest game, and this is where you start seeing the word quest become very important in various Sierra franchises. Uh, this one was called Space Quest The Sarian Encounter, and it used a game engine identical to that of King's Quest, but had a science fiction theme, and was much more light-hearted and comical than King's Quest tended to be. The game's creators were Scott Murphy and Mark Crow. They became known as the guys from Andromeda. They uh, they wanted to make a game that was a little more silly and goofy than what Sierra was really focusing on. They said that the, the tone of the games was a little too serious and dour for their tastes. Space Quest put the Player in control of what amounts to be a space janitor who must defeat an aggressive alien force. And the game, like King's Quest, was a big success and spawned several series, uh, several sequels, I should say, within a series. In 1987, Sierra Online gave Al Lowe, another game developer, uh, a guy who was coming up with various stories for games in Sierra, they gave him the go-ahead to adapt that soft porn adventure game I mentioned earlier that came from the early 80s into a game more in line with the style of King's Quest and Space Quest, something that was a graphical adventure where you controlled a character that could move around uh, an environment and not just a text-based game. And that's when Leisure Suit Larry was born. The first title in the game was Leisure Suit Larry in the Land of the Lounge Lizards. And not only was it a big hit... It was also one of the most pirated games of that era. Legend says that Sierra actually sold more copies of the hint book for Leisure Suit Larry in the Land of the Lounge Lizards than they sold copies of the game itself, suggesting that a whole bunch of people got their hands on that game without paying Sierra any money. Also, this was a time when you couldn't just casually look up hints to a game online. There was no World Wide Web to go to, so... You either would talk to other people who had the game and had figured something out, or you went out and bought a hint book, or you called some sort of phone number that would charge you by the minute to hear hints about how to solve puzzles in the game. Sierra continued to grow. They added more developers. They published more games. Uh, To go through all of them would be exhausting and pointless. There are hundreds of titles that came out over the years from Sierra, But there were some other big series that were important during the history of the company. One of those was a game called Police Quest, and it actually had a former police officer as the lead for the game series. That was Jim Walls, and he had no programming background, but he oversaw development of the game and incorporated actual police procedure and tactics into the game mechanics and the game design. So... Not only is it a game where you're playing a law enforcement officer, you actually have to follow specific protocols in order to advance in the game properly. Uh, this also spawned a series of games, although Jim Walls would leave after the third entry, I believe, into the series, and a different police officer became the lead developer for the other games, which eventually evolved into a series called SWAT. Sierra also developed a game called Heroes Quest, but due to a trademark issue, another company had claim over Heroes Quest, they they would rename the future entries into that series the Quest for Glory. That started with the second game in that series. And it was around that time that Ken Williams was meeting with folks from a little company called id Software to talk about their games that they had in mind. Now, those conversations ended up going nowhere. Ken Williams decided against pursuing uh, being a publisher for id Software Games And eventually he would come to regret that decision because it became incredibly successful. And Sierra could have been in on that. But Ken Williams didn't really feel strongly that this was a good fit at the time. And you heard him say that over in the interview. But it did also plant the seed in Sierra to consider Valve a little more carefully when they came to the company in the late 90s. So you got a bunch of franchises that are all doing well over at Sierra, boosted by a lot of one-off titles as well. In 1989, Sierra would launch the Sierra Network, later known as the Imagination Network, making it the first games-only network. And this is 1989. It's still before the World Wide Web. This is the old bulletin board system days. You would use a modem to call into a computer that would log you into this network, Uh, So very forward thinking, not something that a lot of game companies had really thought about, and it was a bit ahead of its time. It required a huge investment up front, like a million dollars, and it took some time to catch on and never really became profitable. In 1993, Sierra reached an agreement with Prodigy, an online service provider. Back before we had internet service providers, we had online service providers, and Prodigy agreed to carry the network, the uh, Imagination Network, also formed a partnership with a uh, an outlet called CUC International. They had a service called Shopper's Advantage that allowed for online shopping. So you had this collection of services that were packaged together. The venture was never really profitable, as the cost of operating the service was pretty much the same as what it brought in through revenue. And eventually Sierra would sell off its network to AT&T, in return for the promise that AT&T would pay royalties to Sierra for any of the software that it used. Also, back in 1989, Sierra went public. It changed from a privately owned corporation to a publicly traded one. But you heard from Mr. Williams what that was like. The nature of the work changed dramatically, the nature of the business, the culture changed, and suddenly there were a lot of other considerations Williams had to make while operating his company. Now, Sierra had also made some acquisitions during this time, growing as a business by purchasing smaller companies that did lots of different stuff, not just games, but it included companies like Dynamis, which was known for making flight simulators, a company called Impressions Software, which specialized in strategy games. They also bought uh, Papyrus Design Group and SubLogic. These were other companies that made things like sports games, racing games, other strategy games. It was all meant to round out the sort of games that Sierra could make without having to hire on new developers and create new divisions within the company itself. It was seen as easier to buy an existing organization that already specialized in that and just add it to the Sierra family. Now, while Sierra had sold software outside of games for a while, you know, it made money by selling those tools that Ken Williams had developed, it really began to pick up speed in this business in the mid-90s. They began to sell productivity software and recipes software and all sorts of stuff that wasn't at all connected to gaming, which might be a surprise to you if you only know Sierra from the game titles that it sold. They also produced a lot of educational software. It became a big moneymaker for them. The company created a type of software internally called Sierra Creative Interpreter. This would allow artists and musicians to create content for games without having to learn complicated coding languages themselves. So it was meant to streamline that process. And in 1995, the company released an enormous multimedia game. It spread across seven compact discs. So you got to also remember, Sierra existed in a time that went from cartridges and cassettes to floppy disks, and then from floppy disks to compact disks. And at this point, they had done a few compact disk-based games that included multimedia in it, like full motion video, full music, full sound effects, that kind of stuff. So by 1995, they were able to release their most ambitious game in this realm, and it was called Phantasmagoria. It featured live actors, I think there were 25 different actors in the actual game, three-dimensional backgrounds the characters could move around, also took advantage of the latest in PC hardware. This was a point-and-click adventure game, and it was also a labor of love for Roberta Williams herself. The game was a commercial success, but it received some mixed reviews from critics at the time. Uh, It also had experienced numerous delays before it finally came out. Around the same time, the company was on, on the verge of becoming a true behemoth in the software industry. I'm talking about on the same level as Microsoft. Microsoft, of course, a big software company, but Sierra was almost neck and neck with them. And it was around that time that CUC International, the company that made that shopping service I had talked about a second ago, decided to make a move to acquire Sierra. Ultimately, they struck a deal for more than a billion dollars in stocks. That's the one I mentioned at the top of the show. Sierra would end up joining a few other companies that were under the the umbrella that CUC owned. They created a, uh, a brand called Sendent Software. One of those other companies that Sierra joined was one called Blizzard Entertainment. I'll probably have to do an episode on Blizzard sometime in the future. And Ken and Roberta Williams stayed on with the company after that acquisition until a year had passed, and in November 1997, they retired from Sierra. Ken Williams at that point had become pretty disenchanted with the way the company had been going. He really was having issues ever since they had gone public. They had stuck around to provide some leadership during the transition, but they wanted to move on with their lives, and since then, they've done a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with software, mostly sailing around the world. Now back at Sierra under the Syndent Corporation that was formed after CUC merged with another company called HFS Incorporated, the the company that was Sierra split into four major divisions. So now you had kind of four sub-brands under the the brand of Sierra. There was Sierra Sports, which obviously was all the sporting titles, Sierra Home, which was all the non-game software titles, uh, Sierra Attractions, which was casual games, stuff like poker, that kind of thing, and Sierra Studios, which were all the big name games that people were expecting from Sierra. They published some games and expansions that are pretty well known around that time, such as Diablo Hellfire. They didn't develop Diablo, but they did publish a, an expansion pack for Diablo, and they also published Valve's game Half-Life. This was sort of a response to that passing up of id earlier. Uh, In 1998, there was a big scandal at CUC, that parent company, and it involved an accounting fraud case. And so as part of the fallout of this, CUC decided that they wanted to divest, divest themselves of some of their assets, including Sierra. So there was another company, a French company called Havas SA, which purchased Sierra at that time. I should also mention that around this point, Sierra began to transition from developing and publishing games to mainly just publishing them a lot of the development houses got shut down in 1999 the company underwent a reorganization and 250 positions were eliminated as a result uh, layoffs included longtime employees like Scott Murphy that co-creator of Space Quest and Al Lowe the guy behind the Leisure Suit Larry series he got laid off at this time too not long after that the company held another reorganization, so they had just gotten rid of 250 positions. After the second reorg, they got rid of another 100 positions, and in 2000, Havas SA became part of Vivendi Universal. And in 2002, Sierra Online was renamed as Sierra Entertainment. Now, Sierra continued to be used largely as a brand name for a publisher for the next several years. So Between 2002 and 2008, Sierra published games, but it was almost like the name of Atari, where the name Sierra had very little connective tissue to the company that had existed in the 80s and 90s. It was almost more like just a brand name um, that could be slapped onto any game that was being developed under Vivendi for whatever purposes. It might have been a budgeting thing, saying this division needs to publish this game. In 2008... Vivendi Games merged with Activision to create Activision Blizzard and Sierra was transferred over to Activision as a result of this merger. And the brand would remain dormant. It kind of disappeared. It still technically existed. Uh, There was a point where it sounded like Activision was looking to sell off Sierra. And for a while, it just seemed like Sierra was going to just going to be a thing of the past, that it was no longer going to be a relevant term. And then in 2014, seemingly out of nowhere, the Sierra website was updated and said that there would soon be some interesting news about Sierra, including new games coming out. And if you go to that webpage now, you'll see you can download the original King's Quest if you like. And there's also promise of things to come. So the Sierra story is not necessarily over. We may see a renaissance of Sierra online, Sierra Entertainment. So we'll keep our eyes out for that. But for now, the story is at an end. Uh, it was a dramatic rise in popularity, and we could probably do full episodes about some of these games and their impact on the gaming industry and how they developed over time. But obviously, if we want to... Uh, be more succinct, then we need to draw this episode to a close. And maybe in the future, I'll cover some of these in more detail and more depth. If you guys have suggestions for topics I should cover on tech stuff, whether it's a company or a personality or a specific technology, maybe you're sitting there thinking, I just want to know really where telescopes came from and how they work and all their varieties. You should let me know. And it doesn't have to be telescopes. It could literally be any kind of technology. Just send me a message. You can write to me. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle there is techstuffhsw. We also have an Instagram account at techstuffhsw. You can see all sorts of interesting stuff that Crystal is posting over there. And remember, you can watch us live at twitch.tv slash techstuff. I record on Wednesdays and Fridays. And there's a chat room and everything. You can be part of the crowd chatting with me and distracting me as I try and tell you interesting facts about technology. And I'll talk to you again really soon.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.